Welcome to the Anxious Voyage. If you think that title sounds bleak or foreboding, one of two things must be true. You're very lucky or you need to get out more. On this program, we share stories of life and living. We compare notes. We discover commonalities. We accept that life is a glorious, heartbreaking thing, and we embrace and celebrate all of it. <clears throat> Take the ride with us. We're glad you're here. Now, here's your host, Mark O'Brien. Hello again, and welcome to the show. Uh, we're glad you've joined us today. Um, we have a, uh, a very special guest today, but first I just want to tell you that the program, as always, is coming from World Headquarters uh, in beautiful Middletown, Connecticut, birthplace of Melvin Freen, who is the inventor of uh, goose pin bowling, which is kind of like duck pin, but the, the ball is just a little bit bigger. So uh, we'll have an official celebration for him sometime later. Uh, my guest today is Tammy Hayter. Um, and in the description of the show on the uh, Dream Vision 7 radio site, um, I referred to her as the reluctant writer. Um, so, Tammy, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Well, hello, and thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too, and I have been for a while. Um, I actually am I am not completely sure where I want to start, so let, let's just start here. You... Um, and I suppose every writer could say, well, you know, I took an unorthodox path to becoming a writer. Um, but just if you could share a little bit about your path to to becoming a writer. And let me explain to our audience, by becoming a writer, I mean, Tammy has published this wonderful memoir called Walking Old Roads. Um, that's what I mean by she's a writer. Okay, so for 30 years, I was an accountant. Certified public accountant, the whole whole shebang. <clears throat> and in 2017, I decided to retire from that. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I was going to do something, some sort of part-time job, no clue what it was. So I took about a year to do projects and think about what I wanted to do. And during that time, I figured out that I like being my own boss and setting my own schedule and working from home. And so I was having a hard time figuring out what type of job would fit those parameters. And shortly before I retired, my dad had died. So mm. I was spending a lot of time with my mom, helping her cope with dad's death. And then she had some health issues that were coming up too. So I spent quite a bit of time with her and we did a lot of reminiscing. So it occurred to me that since I don't have children, I'm not going to have anyone to reminisce with like that. Mm. So I thought it might be a good idea to start maybe writing down some of the things that we were talking about. And then um, when you're in that weird place where you're, you know, you're looking back at the past through reminiscing. And at the same time, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with my future. It's just this odd little place to be. And this, this one thing that my high school English teacher wrote on one of my papers just popped into my head. She said, I like the way you write. And so I thought, well, now there's something. <laughs> if I can figure out how to make it a part-time job. So my husband knew about medium.com. 
So everything just kind of fell into place. All the little pieces just kind of fell into place. So I started writing essays and putting them out on medium.com. And medium was kind of like writing school for me. Um, Well, partly because, you know, you can write whatever you want and put it out there and just see what people have to say about it. Mm -hmm. So I could get some, some, feedback on what I was doing. And then also it's a great place to just read all kinds of different things, different genres, different styles, and figure out what do you like about this? What do you like about that? What do you not like? And then I would start incorporating some of that into what I was writing. And the writing got better. So I didn't make a whole lot of part-time money at medium. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you did at least recognize that writing is a job and there aren't a lot of people who realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was fun to do, but yeah, I also looked at it from a business angle. I'm, I I think I want to say I'm surprised, but it's something um, more enjoyable than that. If that makes any sense. When you said, um, that you read a lot of other people's content on Medium um, and that that was kind of like writing school for you. And the reason that it takes me by surprise is that I take your style to be distinct. And that seems to me to be as uh, amazing as your your writing itself, because I would think that if you were reading a lot of what other people were writing, especially in a medium like medium, sorry about that. (laughs) um, A tendency might be to try to imitate. Did Hmm. you ever give any thought to that? No, I really didn't. But then I was reading a lot of different things. It's it's like, um, a kind of a sci-fi-ish fiction writer mm. is something I was reading, which is wildly different from my style of writing. But the way he described a scene, it was, you were there. You were yeah. right there. And it was some something that was sort of like where we live now, but it wasn't. It was some weird version of where we live now. And he would just put you right there. So I started to pay attention to, to how he described a scene. But of course, when I describe a scene in my book, it's not going to be some weird, dark, horrible creatures running around. So it it can't sound like his. Right. Okay. But it uses some of the same techniques. Okay. Very, very interesting. So here, here we go. Uh, we're what? five minutes into the show or something, and I'm already going to do something that I didn't expect to do right now. Okay. Um, I'm going to read something from your book because um, the first time I read it, and I've I've now had the opportunity to read your book twice because I read it in manuscript and then I bought it and read it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And and because I know I've cited this before, I wasn't going to do it again. But it's just so amazing. And you put me there. So bear with me. Okay. My travels along the perpetual stream of time have brought me to my half of a granite-topped dual vanity 
in an enviable place of comfortable teeth brushing. Wow. And, <laughs> and I and and I can remember saying to you early on that the 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 way you turn phrases, which it seems to me you can only do if you revere the language as much as you clearly do. Here I experienced the contented application of my public face and the reassuring security of knowing the sink next to me belongs to more than just a wet toothbrush and a well-used mustache trimmer. My mind knows my cup is full, but my eyes see a plain, pale complexion of emptiness wearing the dark weight of guilt and doubt. I do not remember the last time the smile on my face meant the message it portrayed. The unassuming surface of me proclaims no statements of greatness. For half a century, I have strived to please the world around me to find, in the end, the one most disappointed in the wee bit over is, sorry, the one most disappointed is the wee bit overweight, graying woman in the mirror. Whew. So I'm going to guess that's maybe the fifth time I've read that because <laughs> I just love it so much. But I am absolutely with you every single time and, and find more in it. So I'm going to suggest that not only have you put us there, but the way you've expressed that is just so amazing was that hard work and did did you feel vulnerable when you did that oh i think i've felt vulnerable throughout all the writing all of it you know from that very first story i put out on medium that was the hardest thing was to hit the word publish because hmm. you, know, you just don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get from people these days and um, so, yeah, vulnerability, I think, is just there all the time. So I'm going to grab the phrase these days that, that you just said, and I'm going to point out that the subtitle of your book is A Memoir of Kindness Rediscovered. And early in the book, you talk about feeling like you've lost your benevolence. Mm -hmm. Is, is that is that a phenomenon or a realization that's connected just to these days? Or did you feel that coming on for a while? And, and, and do, does it or did it have to do with what you said in the passage I read about being disappointed in yourself? Well, it, it's... This is this is really interesting, and we're probably going to go a way that you wouldn't have expected on this one. Okay. Um, here. The way that I was feeling is something that I didn't have a definition for when I wrote Walking Old Roads. Hmm. It is... Um, I thought it was kindness, which it was. It was it was the, the degradation of my kind heart over decades. 
There was no one specific moment where it happened. It wasn't something that happened overnight. It took decades. But I didn't really have a specific label for it. I just felt like I was off. You know, Mm. that something was just not right about me anymore. And something wasn't right about society anymore. And it's interesting to me anyway, that this parallels my migraine experience is for a lot of people know that I, I have migraine disease, which I was born with, but I've had it my whole life, but we didn't know what it was back then. Mm. So it was something that was wrong with me, but we didn't have a label for it. Mm. Early on when I went to the doctor, he just brushed it aside and said, it's probably an allergy. That was misdiagnosed and just until I was in my 20s, we had no idea what it was. So I knew something was wrong, but I didn't have a label for it. And it was much like that with this book. And so I I wrote it best I could, knowing there was something wrong with me, that I was off. But I didn't have a label for it. And then uh, my husband and I went to Tallgrass Film Festival in October of this year. And we saw a documentary called Join or Die. Mm. And it was about Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. And that book and his entire career, really, is about social capital. The decline in social capital within our society. And everything they were talking about in that documentary, I'm like, that's it. That is it. That is the label. It's like when I got my first accounting job and the paraprofessionals looked at me when I was having a migraine episode and she said, oh, you have migraines. Bam, right there. There's my label. And I know what it is. Now that I know what this monster is, then I can find out about it. I can see how it ticks. I can see what is my version of this illness and what is my version of this decline in social capital. And once you start doing that and you just, you get more and more knowledge about it, then you can do something to fix it. You can do something to make it better. And so that's what I have discovered with this book is that really the whole memoir series is about a decline in social capital and what can I do to make it better? Is, is, and I have not read that other book. So is social capital different from, or more than connections in the world, human connections is based in human connections. Yes. It's, um, well, everything has value, right? whether it's a car, house, a a skill set, and social networks. So social networks have value, and they are productive, real, face-to-face connections with other people within your community, and that leads to reciprocity and trust. So social capital is what makes communities and or societies work together in the form of a community. So it's a a network of relationships among people um, that live in a 
in they live together in a society and it enables them to function effectively. So the more social capital you have, the more effective the society will function, the more prosperous the community will be. So it's a it's a what is the definition of it? It was a positive product of human interaction. Mm. So it's it seems to me it's both individual and collective. Yes. But it wow. starts with the person. Mm-hmm. And I actually haven't read Bowling Alone yet either. It's on my Christmas list, so I'm hoping I get it for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but he, Santa Claus, are you listening? Yeah, yeah. But he wrote uh, more recently another book with this other author, and it's called The Upswing, because he started thinking, well, we didn't start at the top social capital. We had to get there somehow. There had to be an upswing. And so what they found is that from 1920 to 1970 was the upswing. Oh. Wow. So we went from um, the the Gilded Age in the 1920s of having this huge gap between rich and poor to the development of social organizations like the, the Elks, the Odd Fellows, Boys and Girls Clubs, um just um mm. bowling clubs sewing clubs just any kind of thing that would get people together within a community and that increased and when that increased uh we started to care more about education whether they were your kids or not and we cared more about neighborhoods and in communities and each other and that built this trust with each other and and that peaked in about 1970, which is when I was a kid. And see, and that's walking old roads is about stories that happened during that peak of social capital. And since then, it's gone back down and we're almost back to where we were in 1920. Wow. Um, you know, that that makes me think about um people i hear speaking and people i read who are writing about the fact that you know we're we're on the verge of in this context i'll call an upswing that we're we're rediscovering the need for that um yeah i think so too capital. i'll just use it i i hope so um and and i think it's relevant to something else you write about in the book uh which was directly related to covid and you had been out grocery shopping and you said you just you just couldn't wait to get home and close the garage door and just like yeah shut shut yeah. the whole thing out um you referred a moment ago you referred to your migraines as your monster mm-hmm. and i wonder given given what you've described about the process of writing your book and and what you didn't understand when you started to write it. Do you think writing this book was in a way um, a process of getting yet another monster out and, and trying to find a label for it? Oh, I I think so. Most definitely. I'm not sure I realized that's what I was doing at the time. Oh, I don't think we do. No, that just kind of happens. Yeah. Um, 
And I also, for whatever this is worth, I really don't think we have any business at all judging our own work. Um, mm. We just have to, we have to follow that compulsion to do it and get it out and then let it, let it go. Um, and if it's viable, it'll find a life like your book has. Um, and if it's not, we'll know that too. But I think, well, I'll put it as a question to you. Now that you recognize yourself as a writer, do you think it would be possible for you to not write anymore? That's interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I would be able to stop completely now because I have found it to be very therapeutic too. Even if mm -hmm. I don't publish it anywhere, it can help me to just work through things like my, my dad's death. I wrote a story about his death a good two, maybe three years before I ever published it anywhere. Mm -hmm. Just because I was having trouble with it. And as soon as I wrote that story, I felt so much better. And, and so when you said you were having so much trouble with it, was it, was it in the way it was being written or were you struggling with um, vulner vulnerability and what you would have to reveal about yourself if you published it? Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was worried that my mom might read it because yeah. I didn't want her to necessarily know all of it. Because wow. it might be upsetting for her because I watched him take his last breath and, and she had stepped out of the room. So she didn't see everything that I had seen. Um, so I was af afraid that it might hurt her feelings, but um, her cognitive skills have been declining quite a bit in the last couple of years. So not really that worried about her just running around the internet and accidentally finding it anymore. <laughs> you know, we could, we could do a whole separate, I was going to say show, but it would take longer than that. A whole other conversation about um, the expectations that we hold of our parents. Mm -hmm. um, mine, mine are both gone now, but I couldn't even tell you how many times I've sold them short. I did sell them short mm. and thought, well, you know, I can't tell them that because they're not going to be able to handle it. And and then, you know, when I finally came clean, every single yeah. time they surprised me. Yeah. It's it's almost like it's almost like kids, you know. It, it, I, I think I think people, I'm one of them, who tend to sell their kids and their the resilience of their children short. And when you think is something is real you think something is really heavy or really loaded and you have to share that with them. And even, even if they're affected almost as badly as you were afraid they might've been, they're so resilient that, mm -hmm. that they just bounce back. Um, okay. I, I want to go in a whole different direction when we come back. So let's take our first commercial break right now and we'll see you in three minutes. Everybody has a story. Everyone's story deserves to be told. And the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. 
That's why Mark O'Brien created The Anxious Voyage. It's Mark's conviction that every story deserves to be shared, and his purpose is to give people in all walks of life from any circumstances a chance to tell their stories. The Anxious Voyage is now on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Please tune in, please join Mark, and please share your stories. Ever wonder what it's like to have your own radio show? Well, wonder no longer, because you can dip into the radio airwaves by being host for the day on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. It's a fabulous way to get your radio feet wet. It's an opportunity to market your business, modality, or book. Have a guest, mention a sponsor, and take callers. Or you may want to facilitate a lesson by going solo. It's up to you. Listeners can be online, mobile, in cars with Bluetooth, or listen through Amazon's Echo by asking Alexa, play Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. For more details, go to DreamVision7Radio.com and click on Host for the Day. You can't establish your brand's authority without a voice. That's why, since 2004, O'Brien Communications Group, OCG, has been helping companies establish their authority, find their brands, distinct voices, and position their brands effectively and persuasively. So effectively that nine of OCG's clients have been acquired by other companies. OCG's business model emphasizes efficiency and results, not hourly billing, markups, and media commissions. That ensures OCG's advice is unbiased and its clients aren't at financial risk. If you're ready to find your voice and use it to tell your story, OCG is ready to help. You can find O'Brien Communications Group on the web at O'BrienCG.com. That's O-B-R-I-E-N-C-G.com. Or call 860-944-9022. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of Dream Vision 7 Radio Network's unique in house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508 226 1723. That's 508 226 1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Welcome back, everyone, and um, welcome back, Tammy. Um, I, I want to, in this um, segment, I want to talk to you about language, but another question occurred to me. Um, and I think it may be along the same lines as not judging our own work. And first, I want to applaud you. Um, when you were talking about the writing of your book being therapeutic, you did not say it was cathartic. Um, thank you for that. Every, everybody thinks everything is a catharsis. Um, but here, here's what I wonder. There is, in my reading of your book, 
a relatability about it. And I wonder if you've heard from other people who've read your book, who have found feelings or other aspects of him, of themselves in it and said, wow, uh, I know exactly what you mean, or I felt just like that. Did that, has that happened? That has happened a lot. And the, the interesting thing about it for me, and it was surprising too, is that whenever somebody reads the book and they reach out to me and they, they tell me what it was that was most relatable about the book to them, always something different. And I wasn't expecting that, really. Um, so, so far, I don't think any two people have landed on the same story or the same person or the same event, whether it was something today or, or something from the past. So everyone seems to have their own piece of it that they relate to. So I feel like walking old roads has that broad relatability and and so I'm not I'm not a super confident person as you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel, I feel like that's how I know I've got something here. And then it could be something that moves in the direction of something big. You know, I kind of kind of see my memoir series as a, a grassroots level of broad social improvement. Wow. Because it is relatable to so many, and there's room in the story for people to see themselves in it. And and I think that um, I, really, I really feel like that could happen. And, and I say that not despite my status of not being a person of interest, but rather because of my status of not being a person of interest. Um, so first of all, and sorry if this sounds like quibbling, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily that walking old roads is relatable. I think it's that your writing in general is relatable. And at risk of offending anybody, and it is not my intent to do that, I'm, I'm not sure that there are any writers, at least any writers who appeal to me that are what you described as super confident. And I think it's that humility mm. that, that helps good writers like you stay relatable. And, and I think, I think another aspect of that is it seems to me that you're not, you're, you're not looking for the things that people have related to in your book to use those things as a set of expectations. And so I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're thinking, oh, oh okay, well, because these people related to these things in my next book, I got to do this and that. Oh, huh. I think, yeah. sorry to put it this way, but I, I think, and I think it's because of that humility, your interest is in being true to yourself as you write. And I think you can only do that if if you remain humble. And there's just something about super confidence, it seems to me, that detracts from that. But yeah, that's true. I, I would agree with that. And I'm kind of glad I'm not super confident. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, and and I guess I'm glad I'm not a person of interest either, really, because it's it's the problems we have are something that average people are going to have to fix. Yeah. So I I also think that there there are things that people who don't appear to be average people have to fix. They just, I don't know what they do. They cover them up. They hide them better than we do. I don't know. Um, I I can remember somebody and, and believe it or not, it was a former sister-in-law of mine saying to me, you have, you have such a perfect life. And I was thinking, wow, wow. Um, you don't have the vaguest idea. Um, so, I, I would I would like to shift now to to language. So I, I was curious if you think the fact that you were trained as an accountant rather than a writer has has anything to do with the way you write and the the very distinctive way that you turn phrases. And the only thing that could I could liken it to is I love to talk with non-native speakers of English because I learn something every time I do. And I was in a conversation recently with a woman who happens to be a client. And she's a non-native speaker of English. And she was saying that um, within her organization, some kind of reconciliation needed to take place. But she pronounced it reconciliation. And that was just like a ton of bricks falling on me. I was thinking, wow, that's what that means. That's where that comes from. That's a whole different and deeper way of looking at things. So do, do, do you think do you think that the the orientation from which you come at writing has any influence on the way you write? Well, I think it probably does. Since I am, you know, as an accountant, you're very detail oriented. So you tend to look at those small little things that might not seem like they're important. And and you you understand how important they really are. Um, and there's a lot of organization involved, too, especially maybe with a memoir, because you're jumping around from now to then and now to then. And so just to keep it all um great in your mind. I mm -hmm. think the organizational skills helped a lot. And then the business aspect of it. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of writers don't think of what they do as being a job. It's just, a, it's an art form or uh, I don't know how they think about it. <laughs> well, I, I take your point and in in whatever way they think about it, if they if they want to take it seriously and be taken seriously, they have to be disciplined about it. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and that's actually that's that's a way that a friend of mine refers to her and I is that she's random and I'm disciplined. So, <laughs> well, um. I, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm anywhere as disciplined as I could be or need to be, which is probably why I couldn't possibly be an accountant. I just couldn't do it. So well, it's it's like puzzles. 
Being an accountant is it's like a whole series of putting together puzzles. And I enjoy that. And and that kind of falls into the writing too, because you have all these different pieces that you're trying to put together into the form of a book. And and when you get them in the right place, you just you know it. And and yeah. it feels really good when they fall into the right place. I, I, I guess I go about it the, in a slightly different way, which is that um, I always look for first the the logic of it and the, the logic of the organization and that the transitions make some kind of plausible or followable sense. And, and then I always listen for the rhythm um, mm-hmm. and I, and I read it out loud and maybe it's because of my affinity for music. I have no idea, but if, if I can't discern that rhythm in it, then I know it needs to be changed. Yeah. I, I like to read my stuff out loud too. Somehow it just, it translates different in your mind when you do that and you just can immediately see what's wrong with it. Yeah. It, it, so I it, do it, that all the time. It, it absolutely does. If you, if you don't mind, and, and this is because of what we're talking about in terms of precision. Um, and also because I love your writing so much, I'm going to read something else if you don't mind. Okay. I don't mind. Um, Walking down the street of my midlife hometown, the vague familiarity of the innate desire to nurture my old friend of benevolence creeps into my heart. The slight tinge of kindness wants to escape as I pass strangers on the sidewalk. I want to wave and smile and say, hi there, beautiful afternoon for a walk, isn't it? I want to open a pleasant dialogue and participate ever so briefly in a stranger's life. Instead, my gaze points downward to avoid eye contact and conversation. I think a lot of people feel that way mm-hmm. or have felt that way. But to go back to your notion of precision from your accounting background, I don't think they would recognize it that clearly. And I'm not even sure that a lot of people would necessarily discern that as wrong. So I don't know if there's a way for you to to talk about the precision with which you describe that or, or to say how or why you knew that was wrong especially if you haven't read that bowling alone book and, and right. weren't familiar with social capital. Right. And at the time that I wrote that, I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. It just, it felt wrong, but I didn't know that it, it had a name. And well, and what I was describing was um, we used to live in the downtown Wichita and I worked in downtown Wichita. So I walked to work. So, but it's not like, a big city where, you know, Chicago or New York City, where there are thousands of people walking along with you. This is a very small city. Sometimes I was, you know, the only one out there or just a handful of other people. So, you know, that's, that's the scene that I pictured in my mind when I was writing that, was mm. when I was walking around in downtown Wichita, going to and from work. And I grew up in a very, very small town. Hmm. So the contrast 
between that and between the, the walking in Wichita and wanting to be friendly with people, but not trusting that I can be, that is what I was comparing to when I grew up and you talk to everybody. Uh, you, know, you would go to the, the post office to get your mail and that's where community members would meet and, and they would hang out and they would talk and they would gossip and <laughs> you would find out what was going on in town. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of back then you were uh, shy or introverted or something. No. Okay. No, it was just a different world. Okay. Different environment. And and then the really interesting thing is that my mom is still very much like that. So we, when I take her grocery shopping, she will talk to people as she passes them in the aisle. But I didn't. Mm. As a kid, was, you didn't or you don't now? No, as an adult. As an yeah. adult. Now, when I'm taking her grocery shopping now, she will talk to people in the aisle. But me, I am focused on my shopping. I just pass somebody by without even looking at them. And that's just what people do now. And that's yeah. kind of sad because when she talks to them, it is interesting. As soon as they make eye contact and they exchange just a sentence, you can just see them lighten up. I, why can't why can't we do that more? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, I, I I suppose we could also dive into this deep psychological thing about you know upbringings and childhood trauma or something, um, which you seemed to experience none of. Um, <laughs> but but I think a lot of people sort of exist on this scale between uh, feelings of unworthiness and invisibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but that may not even be correct um because your mom is like that but you're not and i'm not judging either of those things to be right or wrong it's just different yeah he just he just has a way yeah um did she just trust easily i don't know maybe it's because she's older maybe when she was my age she wasn't any more trusting than i become i don't know it's it's interesting too that you see it you see it as a matter of trust when when you were working in kansas city when presumably when you were younger did you did you think this same way did you feel distrustful it's it's something that has it's grown over the decades but yeah i certainly oh. I certainly had developed a lot less trust in people over the years. And um, I don't know if that's being in the workplace and being a woman in the workplace. I mean, I I don't know that it makes as much difference now as it did when I started, but there was a difference. You know, I I have this abiding curiosity of whether, and I'm, and I'm taking this from your phrase over the decades, uh, of whether the world has become less trustworthy or because of ubiquitous communication, we're just so much aware of it all. I was in a conversation yeah. this morning and 
I, I happen to mention to someone that um, I have a I have a grandson who's going to be 11 tomorrow, and I I would just love it if he and his younger sister could come up here sometime. But you can't go on an airline alone until you're 15. And somebody on the call said, well, I was on when I was eight years old. And I, my first reaction was, well, yeah, but there was probably a, a lot fewer perverts around than there are now. Um, that may not even be true. I well, don't know. From a percentage standpoint, maybe not. I mean, there's more people, period. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And we're just more aware of things. I don't I mean, social media and the internet, that's that's made the world a completely different place Yeah. than when we were kids. Yeah. Completely different. Not necessarily bad. Well, yeah, I think I think it depends on how it's used and, and, yeah. and how it's monitored. And you know, I think um in either increasing concern or concern for things that didn't concern you when you were younger sort of comes along with being older. But, you know, mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who was always thinking, well, what the kind of, what, what, what the heck kind of world are my grandkids going to live in? I mean, it just seems in, yeah. inconceivable to me and probably not to them. Right. And who knows, maybe we're going to be back on that upswing and they'll end up having a great world to live in. I, I hope so. And I'm going to take that as a cue for our second commercial break. <laughs> uh, perfect timing. Thank you. Um, we'll be back in three minutes um, and we'll wrap up then. Are you ready for the quantum age? Humanity's next step in evolution? Dream Vision 7 Radio Network invites you to the extraordinary platform of evolutionary voices for the quantum age. Let's explore. Learn more about this upcoming age where we bridge science with spirituality. Where potentiality meets reality. Where we take compassion into action. Our trailblazers and visionaries will ask the whys, the what ifs, while igniting continuous possibility. Come along with us into an age beyond what we know today where we can grow together in unity consciousness experience evolutionary voices for the quantum age monday through friday at 8 a.m and 8 p.m eastern on dreamvision7radio.com you can't establish your brand's authority without a voice. That's why, since 2004, O'Brien Communications Group, OCG, has been helping companies establish their authority, find their brand's distinct voices, and position their brands effectively and persuasively. So effectively that nine of OCG's clients have been acquired by other companies. OCG's business model emphasizes efficiency and results, not hourly billing, markups, and media commissions. That ensures OCG's advice is unbiased and its clients aren't at financial risk. If you're ready to find your voice and use it to tell your story, OCG is ready to help. You can find O'Brien Communications Group on the web at O'BrienCG.com. That's O-B-R-I-E-N-C-G.com. Or call 860-944-9022. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. 
Come take advantage of DreamVision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. Everybody has a story. Everyone's story deserves to be told. And the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. That's why Mark O'Brien created The Anxious Voyage. It's Mark's conviction that every story deserves to be shared, and his purpose is to give people in all walks of life from any circumstances a chance to tell their stories. The Anxious Voyage is now on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Please tune in, please join Mark, and please share your stories. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Welcome back once again. Um, Tammy, I have this theory that the best writers, or at least the ones I enjoy the most, have a knack for connecting dots. Um, and in so doing, sort of bringing things full circle to what I take to be a beautifully logical wrap-up, if if not conclusion. And, and I also want to share what I'm about to share because I think, and I and I love the fact that reconciliation comes up here again. You bring the reader of your book to a, a wonderful reconciliation for what you started out thinking about. So I just want to read this little snippet from your introduction, and this is something that I'm sure I'll just keep reading over and over because it's just so incredibly written. A squeak to the right of the top of the bell curve is a modest little dot. That's me. The minuscule speck of a flawed perfectionist dangling her feet over a midlife crisis. Wow. I, I almost don't even want to tell you how amazingly beautiful that is because I don't want to make you afraid that you can't do it again. <laughs> um, and then toward the end of the book, you write this. My beloved, benevolent nature and I are in a long-term relationship worth the effort of nurturing and best not taken for granted. Like the bond between mother and daughter, the experiencing kindness firsthand and in real life can define us and make the world a better place. As for the definition of me, my story continues along my circle of life. More walks down memory lane are in the future for mom and me as I continue the search for how I became the flawed perfectionist sitting slightly to the right at the top of the bell curve. A benevolent perspective wraps my heart in a warm blanket of contentment and peace 
as I remember the caring people who taught me kindness by living their lives together. Benevolence and I may never achieve perfection, but we can bring balance to the second half of my existence as I continue toward the inevitable finality of eternity in a filing cabinet of unalphabetized endings. Oh, oh, man. Okay, so first of all, that is just, that's just writing. That's just flat out writing. Is it, is it undue pressure on you if I think that in finding and labeling this monster that you you have sort of come back to rediscovering your benevolence and and I don't want to go too far with this but in recognizing that if if, if it's not right here it's not and that you you have a responsibility to finding that again and letting you appreciate and accrue the social capital we've been talking about since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that the rediscovery of kindness is a huge part of sending social capital back to a, an upward trend. And, and I, I think, I don't know that it's really put putting any pressure on me necessarily <laughs> because I feel like um, there's more hope actually now that I've defined what it is. Wow. And it's like with the migraine thing. Once I knew what it was, life got so much better because mm-hmm. I could see that monster and I could learn what made it tick mm. and I could take measures to keep it in its place. And so I'm hopeful that now that I have a label for what the problem really is, that that's going to make the second book just that much better. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I'm about to say, I don't, yet again, I don't want to put pressure on you, but you're going to anyway. <laughs> well, no, I just wonder, God, and you know, there's always the danger that um I, I might make someone self-conscious with a question like this, but do you do you recognize how much courage it takes even to want to know and and then to be able to deal constructively with the finding out? And to derive hope from it, that's an astoundingly beautiful thing. Well, I mean, I guess I didn't recognize it in that sense. It's just, if I don't do something about it, then I'm just not going to feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. So, but um, it is frightening. I mean, to have to to get out there, to put yourself out there, so is very frightening. That that takes me back to not, definitely not 
judging our own work. Because I think, no, I know I derive things from your book that we probably haven't even talked about, and so you might not recognize. And I and I didn't even know until you said the word hope that this whole thing makes me feel hopeful. I mean, I I can be as bleak or bleaker than the next guy, but this is kind of like it's kind of like an anchor like you know don't don't worry as much as you might be concerned about stuff you know you're not going to fly off the planet and the world's not going to fly apart because it's it hope is always in exactly the same things it's in family and community and mm -hmm. you know social capital is a really clinical term but it's that too yeah all right so um, we, we do need to wrap up, but please um, tell people how they can find you, how they can find your book, and how the two of us um, can keep folks informed about what you're up to next and when your next book might be available, et cetera. Okay, sure. Um, Walking Old Roads is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Walmart.com. And it is now also available at Watermark Bookstores in in Wichita. Mm -hmm. and, and they also have online availability and they ship everywhere as well. Um, and you can find out all of that on my website, which is TammyHater.com. And I have on there podcasts that are coming up and book signings and that's where I keep people informed about how the second book is coming along, which I hope comes out sometime next year. I'm not sure when. I've got a lot of work to do. Okay. Well, we, we won't hold you to it. And uh, would there be any value in people looking you up on LinkedIn? Sure. Sure. I'm on LinkedIn pretty much every day. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad that we did this. Um the conversation it won't, won't surprise you at all is not by and large what I expected. And I love that about yeah. it. And uh, I, I hope neither you nor anyone who happened to be with us today will be disappointed if I ask you to come back. Yes, I would love to come back. Okay, good. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you to everyone who joined us today. We will see you in two weeks. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning into The Anxious Voyage, the program dedicated to sharing stories, helping people, and celebrating life. You can see and listen to The Anxious Voyage on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. If you have a story to tell, or if you know someone who does, please email the host, Mark O'Brien, at mark at o'briencg.com. In the meantime, please remember, the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow.